Have you ever been in physical danger from your fans? Um, well, occasionally, yes. Only when there's been a, a big mob, you know, a really big one. But usually they're quite nice if there's only a few at a time when you meet them. Don't come around, leave me alone, don't bother me. Taros. I'm Richard Buskin. I'm David Stark. The Beatles. Naked.
so David, give us a bit of background, first of all, in terms of you growing up and just your interest generally in pop music, pop and rock music, and then how that translated into Beatles, like the first time you even heard of the Beatles. Well, as I say in the book, I distinctly remember standing on the stairs in our old house in, in Stanmore in yep. northwest London and listening to Pick of the Pops on the radio in January 1963, uh, hosted by Alan Freeman, a well-known disc jockey on the BBC, and hearing this new record, Please Please Me, which he'd played, and I just thought, well, what is this? I had no idea who the Beatles were, uh, but it just sounded great. And I just remember being transfixed by it for some reason. Yeah. So that's how it started. And then soon after that, uh, kind of got into them, hearing them on the radio all the time. And I started my Beatles scrapbooks, which I kept almost all the way through the 60s. And that was it. When did they start then? When do your scrapbooks go back to? Right in early 63 from kind of... Spring 63, um, yeah, they really started very early. And I was only um, 10 years old. So, uh, And so you were picking up on just the press reports about Beatle, you know, early Beatlemania then? Oh, everything. Anything that was in the papers, I'd stick them in the scrapbook. And, uh, yeah, I was, I was a, a Beatle fan right from, right from the early days. And... What had you been listening to before that? Ah, well, also, as I say in the book, my favourites back in the day were Helen Shapiro <laughs> was was my big love at the time when I was a kid. Okay. Um, yeah. And Cliff Richard and The Shadows, Adam Faith, Chubby Checker with The Twist, and yep. um, Anthony Newley. He was great with you know, a couple of novelty records. And uh, yeah. other other silly songs like the Runaway Train, and all sorts of novelty stuff from that period. So I wasn't really a serious music fan until the Beatles came along. But I loved everything. In fact, I, I'd also started scrapbooks before um, the Beatles one um, with with other artists. Yeah, Helen, Cliff, The Shadows. I've still got all those somewhere. Fantastic. So I must have been about nine years old. Okay, so you're following them through '63. And any particular strong memories of that year before you actually get to see them in the flesh? Well, just seeing them on TV. And obviously, uh, they did the the Royal Command performance that year. And that's... That was November of 63. Yeah, it was all going crazy. And, um, you know, I was just loving it all. Do you remember seeing them on Sunday night at the London Palladium? Oh, sure. Yeah, of course I did. Yeah, so yeah. all those major TV appearances... I didn't keep a diary in 63, uh, but I will certainly have watched them all. But I started a diary in 64 and I logged everything I saw. And so what about your mates at school? What was it like at school? Was it just Beatlemania or was it like half and half? Or Not really. No, I was at, still at primary school at the time. I suppose there are quite a few fans there. But I, I always felt that I was their big fan in the area and, uh, you know, they were my group. And I don't remember, you know, I suppose I, I discussed them with my friends, but, you know, I, I didn't have any other friends who were as big a f- fan as I was. It was probably mostly a female thing at that time, Dave, right? So, 
Yeah, that's true. That's true. So I wasn't meeting enough girls age nine and ten. So that was the problem. So. <laughs> so when did you first see them? Well, that wasn't until January the 6th, 1965, when they were doing the... Uh, the another Christmas show at Hammersmith Odeon. And that yeah. was the, the one only time I saw them with my family. My dad got the tickets, I believe, through an accountant he knew named Charles Silver, who was also uh, the uh, kind of the silent partner uh, of Dick James in Northern Songs. Uh, as, uh-huh. as far as I know so I had a bit of a connection not that I knew anything about it until later but dad mm. did tell me afterwards that he was asked to invest in Dick James music when Dick formed it before Northern Songs yeah. came along and dad yeah. turned him well I think Charles Silver asked him and dad turned him down as he knew nothing about music he was in the ladies garment business so right. So if if that's true just think as the company went public, I missed out on a small fortune there. So <laughs> you did, and you ended up working for Dick. That's James the funny music thing. Seventies. Yeah, yeah, our paths crossed in 1968 very briefly, as you know, and then I started work for for Dick James Music in the early seventies. Now, before th- this sort of vague sort of Dick James connection in '65. You already had a Beatles connection. Hadn't you already run into Clive Epstein? Yeah, that's right. When we were on holiday in Torquay in Devon in uh, southwest southwest England in uh, the summer of 64, where it's a very nice hotel called the Imperial. Um, And uh, at the pool one day, my parents got chatting to a young couple down from Liverpool. Turned out to be Clive and his uh, fiancée, Barbara down for a few days holiday so we all got chatting and they were very nice and of course I wanted to uh, know all about the Beatles and I'm sure he well he told me quite a bit and uh, I wasn't trying to pester him but obviously having Brian Epstein's brother you know by the pool it was amazing and he was a nice chap and he yeah he was he looked very similar to Brian had reddish hair no trace of a Liverpool accent either, and uh, yeah, a very nice couple. And then when I got home after after the holiday, he sent me some glossy photos of the Beatles, which I still have, from NEMS in Liverpool. Very nice of him. Wow. I have to jump in here, Dave, for a second. You know, as I read through your book, um, and you do list that... Thank God you were, you were an archivist by nature. You kept everything, and... Yeah, pretty much. Almost everything. <laughs> One of the things I love about the book is, as you're going through it, you, you mention, uh, you know, and then I, I still had the uh, program from another Beatles Christmas show, and I'd have this signed, and I've got the John and Yoko signing from 71 of Grapefruit. Yeah, yeah. D- Dave, whatever happens to you in life, I feel good that we're never going to have to, like, hold a bake sale for you, because <laughs> if you ever auctioned all that stuff, you could probably... Uh, yeah. You know, buy a, a castle next to Sting or something. I don't know about that, but... You know, unless I was absolutely desperate, I would, ne- I would never sell them. They're very close personal items in my collection. Now, more just as a commentary on, on the drooling I was doing is as I'm reading some of this stuff going, oh, that must be <laughs> awesome. You know, a- another thing about your book, there is a shift where suddenly you're very proactive. Um, and I I seem to draw it as you're at your friend's house and 
in St. John's Wood, and you guys decide to go over to see if anything's happening at, at EMI, and uh, a certain guy rolls by in a Rolls Royce with, uh, well, you tell it. Well, yeah, that was my first encounter with any of the Beatles, apart from seeing them in concert, was when I had this good friend at school. He lived right near Abbey Road Studios, or EMI Studios, as we should call it, in the early 60s. He lived just a, uh, you know, a, a couple of minutes away. So he was always saying, I saw the Beatles arriving yesterday, and he'd seen them a number of times. And I lived in Stanmore, which was a good five or six miles away. So I, you know, when you're young at that time, and I was 13, and I just thought I must go up, visit him, and try and see what's what's happening at uh, Abbey Road. So, uh, so that's when I went in the Easter holidays of 1966, and I cycled all the way there, which I still can't believe because I had my bicycle, and uh, we went to his place first. Um, and actually, that was also the very first day I ever played drums, which I've done ever since all my life, because he had a, a drum kit set up in his bedroom. Anyway, so we, we were mucking about on that and then had a bit of lunch. And then he said, let's go down to the studio. It was about, I don't know, two o'clock or something. And then so I wheeled the bicycle along and put it up against uh, one of the studio gates. And there's a whole lot of girls there and other people waiting. And we just joined the crowd, and within a short period of time, this uh, Rolls-Royce Phantom V comes along, huge black limo. But not only could we see it, we could hear it, because there's somebody doing a kind of gobbledygook commentary as the car's coming along. And I realise it's got a speaker fixed up underneath the bonnet, and it's Lennon, John Lennon, speaking complete nonsense as the car's approaching. I mean, I only wish somebody had recorded this or I could remember what he said, but I can't. But it was like it was like something out of the goons. That's all I can remember. And then as the car approaches the studio gates, I suddenly hear him say, and get that bloody bike out the way. So uh, <laughs> that was it. So uh, which, I had to, which I had to do. I'll never forget him saying that. Uh, and it obviously caught me off guard, and then I get the bike out of the way, the car goes in the car park, all the all the fans follow it in, he jumps up and goes straight up the steps, and that was it. I didn't meet him that day, but, you know, he did speak to me <laughs> without me saying... Yeah, you, you, you entered his consciousness, which is pretty cool. I, I think, and I have to ask you one other question that, that predates what we're talking about now, but I'll do that in a second. But was that a, do you see that as a conscious shift? Like, oh, if I start actually becoming proactive in this, I'm going to create opportunities for me to to meet these heroes of mine. I mean, did it happen then or did you become aware of that later? No, it didn't really. It, it never really entered my mind, to be honest, because... Uh, I went back there, I think the week later, just in case anything anyone was there, and I saw George Martin going in the studio, took a picture of him, also saw Graham Nash arriving by car, and Frank Highfield <laughs> was walking in. So and I got pictures of all of them, but that was it. I didn't I didn't bother going back again. I lived quite a long way away. So in fact the rest of sixty six and you know, sixty seven when they were obviously in the studio doing Pepper, and they were coming and going all the time. I never went up there once, which was my mistake. But 
it didn't really occur to me that I could make more of this at the time. So when was the next time that you decided to try and run into them? Well, yeah, well, it wasn't until July 17th, 1968, which was the day of the Yellow Submarine premiere, where I knew they were going to be at the cinema that evening. It was a, it was a big deal because they hadn't been, you know, they hadn't been seen in public properly uh, in England since they'd finished t- uh, touring in the last gig at uh, Wembley Arena, or the Empire Pool, rather, uh, back in 66. May 1st, 1966. Yeah, that's right. So, obviously, this was going to be a big occasion, the film premiere. They were going to be there. So I went with my pal, and I said, come on, we've got to go and just be, a, you know, just to see them and be amongst the crowd. That that was the plan. That's all. That's all we went up there for. Uh, until things suddenly changed when we got there. And by sheer luck and a bit of chutzpah, as we say, I saw a door next to the main entrance to the cinema. We went through this door. 
we'd seen the chap going in through it and it happened to be open. We found a lift that took us up to the roof of the cinema and spent a couple of hours up there with some other people who'd obviously had the same idea. They were mainly French for some reason. And uh, yeah, so we are up there, but then looking down and all the people arriving below, like at about seven o'clock, you know, the, the limos started arriving and people were going crazy. And so I said to my pal, also called David, by the way, that we should uh, try and get into the cinema, which we did easily. We just went back inside, found some steps into the upper circle and were immediately accosted by an usherette who uh, asked to see our tickets. <laughs> so that could have been the end of it. Uh, but I said, no, actually, we gave them in downstairs when we she said, oh, no, you shouldn't have done that. You should keep your tickets with you at all times. And I'll have to call the manager to, to sort this out. So, uh, so she calls, yeah, the manager comes along and says, well, how are, how are you, uh, who invited you tonight? So I said, um, well, actually, it was Clive Epstein, uh, Brian, or Brian had died by that time, but Brian Epstein's brother invited us. I mean, a big as, bigger fib as you can say. So he said, so uh, he says, oh, okay, well, let's go and find him then and um, see if he can vouch for you. And I'm thinking, oh dear, well, if he finds a, if we find him, I mean, you know, we're out. If we don't find him, we're out. So uh, he takes, he takes us, <laughs> he takes us one level down to the, the dress circle where all the VIPs are gathering and, and heads, and we head to the bar in search of Clive Epstein. Um, and I was quite smartly dressed. I have to say, I had a nice Lord John of Carnaby suit on, which... Uh, which most like my, my father's manufacturer, he they manufactured for Lord John know, of Carnaby Street. So you may well have been wearing my dad's suit. I may well have done. And uh, had a very nice uh, turquoise shirt and a very flashy kipper tie. So I kind of looked the part. With my long now, why were you so dressed up if you were only intending to be amongst the crowd? It's like you were dressed ready to be in the dress I, circle. Exactly. So I must have, must have had something in the back of my mind thinking, maybe we can get in. I had no idea. You know, I really can't remember, but I must have had that in the back of my head. You see, na so, natural zelig instincts, Eric, you see. Exactly. They, yeah. No, you know, that is, that's a technique I was taught, actually, by the great Jason Brabazon, uh, great <laughs> uh, who kinks, Beatles guy. And he always, we got into so many adventures recording shows, and he always told me, you must look like you know what you're doing, and you must dress the part and never look flustered. If you just follow those Absolutely rules, true. look like you know what you're doing. You have to, so as we're walking through the dress circle, I suddenly see a familiar face I've never met in my life with a bald head, um, heavy rimmed glasses. He's just standing there and I went up to him. I said, Dick James. It was Dick James. I knew who he was. I said, oh, hello, Dick. Um, we're just looking for Clive Epstein. Um, <laughs> have, have, have you seen looking him? to avoid him, actually, but... Yeah, well, yeah. So, have you seen him? He said, oh, oh, no, I'm so sorry. He rang me this afternoon, and he says he's stuck in Liverpool on business. He can't make it. It's such a shame. <laughs> 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 and, 
At which point... The key, the key word here is chutzpah. You know, yeah. 15 years old. Yeah. I'd have never had that kind of chutzpah at that age. It's amazing. Well, it, it was amazing. It was amazing. And so the manager immediately says, oh, I can see you know people here. That's all right. Enjoy the film. That was it. <laughs> <laughs> A different so, era. Yeah. So then I thank Dick. We walk away, not knowing that I was going to end up working for him six years later. <laughs> and um, <laughs> then we're just standing at the back of the circle, the dress circle. There's quite a few other people there. And then suddenly it all goes mad as the Beatles start arriving. And the, and the uh, paparazzi are all following them in and down to the front row. Um, and they all start sitting down. And there's loads of flash bulbs going off, and it's like smoke everywhere. And it was really very hazy indeed, but everyone's going crazy in the audience as the Beatles are arriving, as you can imagine. And, like, of course, there's that shot of George and Patty walking straight past me into the, yeah. cine- into the circle uh, when I got the most gormless look on my face. But, uh, uh, <laughs> Which is, uh, well, considering how beautiful Patty looked that particular evening, um, I think at least you weren't drooling, which I would have been in that picture. Oh, yeah, she looked lovely. She really did. So anyway, as the as the um, the photographers start coming back up the aisle and 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 uh, the haze starts clearing, I suddenly see these two seats literally on the second row behind Paul uh, and his guest, who I didn't know who it was at the time. So. We walk down there straight away to find that the third seat is occupied by Keith Richards, who's wearing a very nice velvet jacket and uh, looking cool as ever. And he's with Anita Pallenberg on his right. And she was wearing a hat and looking uh, like a film star, which she was at the time. So I just asked him, oh, excuse me, is anybody sitting here? Um, he said, nah, it's Mick and Marianne, but they're in New York. You're all right there, mate. So, <laughs> um, can you believe it? it Unbelievable. Was absolutely true. So, I sit down next to Keith, and I'm sitting directly behind Paul, and John just to my right. I, John's in my vision the whole time. Paul, I can only see the back of his head most of the time, but I'm just looking at John because, you know, he's got that white suit on the black shirt and that little talisman he used to wear around around his neck and he just looked fantastic and George and Ringo are you know just a few seats away so I'm literally sitting behind all the Beatles for nearly two hours in the cinema uh, and didn't ask them for one autograph I'm just trying to be as cool and not flustered as you said Eric so uh, <laughs> That, that was, you have to look the part. That's the that's the trick. Is you gotta yeah. look the part, and uh, and you got away with it. Have you seen the color footage of of uh, that night? Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. He's in it. Gonna, Dave's yeah, in that's it. what I figured. That that yeah. was the reason. Because yeah. for a while, the black and white was all that was floating around. No, no, the color's good, and uh, yeah, I love looking old. I mean, that memory of that night for me represents pretty much the whole of swinging London in the sixties. It was fantastic. And, you know, just being there in the centre of it. And the film was incredible. I loved it. And at one point, you know, they they were playing all the new songs, of course, which nobody had heard before. So uh, I remember, and I think it was after Hey Bulldog, which I absolutely loved. I, I leant over to Paul and I said, oh, that was a good one. And he goes, oh, thank you. 
So. <laughs> <laughs> Once the film had finished and the audience was going mad applauding, uh, everybody wanted to congratulate them. They're coming down to the to, to the aisle, and the Beatles could not move for quite a, you know, five or ten minutes. I'm just stuck there. I'm chatting to John. Paul was with actually Jenny Boyd. I later discovered yes. Patty's sister, yeah. as he'd just broken up with, with Jane Asher. But I'm, yeah. I had a few words of John and George. And I, t- I remember telling George what I thought of the movie, and he was he was quite uh, interested and quite polite about it. And then eventually he and Patty uh, managed to get out and walk up to the circle. Um, and I, we just followed him straight up there. And then 
when he gets into the foyer, he's accosted by a, uh, a film crew, and there, you can see the photo where he's standing there with Pappy, Patty watching. All the paps are surrounding him and reporters, and I'm standing just to his left, and <laughs> and that's 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 the photo which I didn't see until twenty years later, when Richard remembers when I yes. first saw it, don't you? Yeah, well, I was going to say so. I first met David in about 1981. Mark Lewison introduced me. He said, you've got to meet this guy. He's had all these Beatles experiences. He was at the Yellow Submarine premiere and so on and so forth. So we all got together at the National Film Theatre, I remember, and uh, had a good chat and, you know, these fantastic stories. And they were very believable. And Dave had some photographic evidence, but nothing from Yellow Submarine except that there's that photo of Paul and you can see him, you know, sort of looking to one side and there's an empty seat behind. And David always said to me, that's where I sat. Mm. Okay, fine. You know, I take his word for it. And some people would said to me, nice guy, but can you be sure that all his stories are true? <laughs> anyway, we flash forward, as David said, and uh, interviewed him for the Beatles monthly magazine and did a feature. And when it gets published, he calls me and says, have you seen the article? Well, I haven't looked at it yet. Turn to page 40 or whatever page it was. And we turn and there's the photo of him standing wow. behind George in the lobby. Yikes. My God. Then we fast forward, I don't know, another decade or so. And Mark Lewison sends me a videotape from the UK. I'm now living in the States. And then he calls me up afterwards and said, did you watch it? I said, yeah, I had some of the Yellow Submarine premiere footage. He said, and? I said, what? And he said, well, obviously you, you didn't watch. He said, go to, and he gave me the time. He said, now pause it and go frame by frame. <laughs> and I, I'm doing it and I'm nudging it while he's on the phone. And suddenly there's Dave you know, <laughs> trying to approach George, <laughs> who who has a move like Muhammad Ali, kind of dodges out the way. And, and I went, oh, and I went, oh, bloody hell. And then we fast forward to just a few years ago and the Martin Scorsese George documentary Living in the Material World comes out. I'm sitting here, you know, with, with um, my daughter and everything watching it. And all of a sudden, you know, it's the Yellow Submarine premiere. And I go, oh, fucking hell, there he is. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. It was in the George film. And then a few years ago, um, Olivia did a, a book signing for the book of that film, Living in the Material World, at, yeah. at Waterstones on Piccadilly Circus. So I went down with my bandmate, Glenn, who plays George, in, in, my, in our band, The Trembling Wilburys. And... Uh, so she was slightly surprised to see him because he really does look like George, but she was fine with it. And I said to her, oh, um, you, you, I don't know if you remember this little clip in, in the film you've got of me as George and Patty walk into the, into the cinema. And she says, oh, yes. I remember that bit. Yeah, we put that one specially in for you. So. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. My goodness. So now... That same year, 68, you have a few other Beatle encounters, don't you? You've got um, Rock and Roll Circus. Yep. Well, that was it. 68 was my year, really. Um, yeah, there was... Well, before the circus, there was, of course, John and Yoko getting busted in yes. October of 68 at the flat on 
34 Montague Square, where they were living at the time. And they were busted on a Friday by a pilcher of the yard, the, yes. <laughs> the infamous uh, policeman who later got done for perjury. And, yeah. But I read in the Standard about about this, and it said uh, the the hearing will be tomorrow morning at Marylebone Magistrates Court, which was a Saturday, no school that day. So I take myself up to Baker Street, walk a few yards to to the courthouse, which is already getting pretty mobbed by that time, and loads of people, loads of police. So I'm just standing there, and John and Yoko arrive with Neil Aspinall, get out the car, and the cameras are going crazy. And there again, I'm snapped in a shot behind John with Neil Aspinall, and there's 15-year-old me, looking a bit like Mick Jagger, which again, I didn't see till um, some years later, after after John was shot, the, the photo was published in Ray Connolly's book, um, whatever that was. Uh, 40 to 80? Yeah, 40 to yes, 80, yeah. that one. So, And there it is in the book. Then we saw there was more than one shot, wasn't it? I think there were two shots. Yeah, there were two. I actually uh, managed to get hold of another shot, and um, yeah, and that one's on the back of the book. And also, that was in the Imagine book, wasn't it, that Yoko published? Yeah, I mean, the one, the main shot has been used in quite a few books, and yeah, it was like a big half a page spread in in that Imagine book, and uh, you know, a few others as well. So, uh uh, but it's not. And my... I love the fact that you're instantly recognised. Well, that's the other great thing. Yeah, right? you know, we all age, and yet it's like it's you. There's no denying it's you. Well, wait till you see the book and all the pictures I've put together. Um, you know, it's just like, yeah, it's my own scrapbook, really, of all my encounters. And as John would have called it, your scrapbook of madness. Exactly. Ah, yes. Yeah, yeah. Not not every time I met them by any means, but just a few key events where I, you know, I was in shock, which was nice. So now, what about rock and roll circus? How did oh, you yeah. get into that? Well, that was easy because I'd won uh, the enemy had a little item in uh, I guess November '68. Uh, Stones are doing a TV film. You can win t- free tickets by writing off. So I wrote off. Next week I get an invitation back uh, for t- you know for two of us. So we go along on uh, December tenth, nineteen sixty-eight, to a slightly remote studio in Wembley, Middlesex, uh, which was where it was being shot. And uh, yeah, it was just an amazing experience because you know I'd never seen the Stones before, so I wanted really wanted to go. And then other guests included. John and Yoko, Clapton, Keith Richards, Mitch, Mitch Mitchell of Jimi Hendrix Experience, as the supergroup Dirty Mac. So that was definitely the first rock supergroup, in my opinion. And yeah. uh, along with others like Jethro Tull, Marianne Faithful, and Taj Mahal, who I thought was incredible. Um, so it was, it was just a great experience. Actually, one of your other big rock obsessions were on the bill that night and actually outshone the Stones, right? Oh, yeah. The Who. Absolutely. I forgot to mention, yeah. Uh, I'd already seen The Who quite a few times. The first being 
in January 67 at the Savile Theatre when Jimi Hendrix was supporting them and all the Beatles were there that night. So my, my three favourite bands uh, in the same place as me for one night only uh, at the Savile Theatre that night. But yeah, The Who played the circus and I thought they were great. Um, and they played the mini opera. Yeah, I was only slightly disappointed because that was already two years old by that time and I'd seen them do it quite a few times. And I, I put this in the book, but I really wish they'd have done more recent stuff like Magic Bus or I Can See For Miles or something. But then, knowing Pete Townsend, I'm sure he played what was their longest track on purpose. Yeah, right. Because they were going to get one song. I, I have to ask yeah. you, there's another thing you write about in the book. Right at that moment, I think you said you're, uh, you're answering the call of nature and you're going to look to, uh, yeah. to find the, the can, as That's we like right. to call it. Yep. And, um, and you happen to walk by a certain quartet talking. And, and I want you to tell us a little bit about that. And then I've got to ask you a question, uh, yeah. your opinion about something. So, so who are these guys that you ran past? Okay, so this is it. I... You know, there was a break in filming. I had to go to the to the men's room, which was right the opposite side from where we were sitting. I walk all the right all the way around the circus ring, into the little gang kind of gangway leading to the uh, to the restrooms, and who I passed four guys all standing together facing each other, ha having a chat, namely John Lennon, Mick Jagger, Eric Clapton, and Pete Townsend. The four of them, and I don't think Damn. any, I don't think anyone else saw this apart from me. And there again, I'm walking past them, trying to keep as cool as possible, not saying a word, just going, you know, going to the loo as we call it, and uh, you know, and thinking if there's one time in my life I wish I'd, ha I wish I'd had a camera with me, that was it. <laughs> Yeah. I'm surprised you didn't sort of. I could see you doing, going, walking up to them. And you guys got a light. Well, I should you have know? done. You know, in retrospect, I should have. I should have gone up to them, asked if John remembered me from the Yellow Submarine premiere, and uh, you know, told Pete. You know, I've seen the Who a few times, and I was only 15, so they would. They would have. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I think they would have tolerated yeah. you. I think. I gotta, I gotta ask your opinion though. What, what interests me the most about that story is the fact that uh, Lennon and Pete Townsend are in a conversation together. Because I always noticed that uh, Pete, well, especially in the mid '60s, Pete seemed to slag off the Beatles a bit when he was on television and asked about it. Okay, and didn't really seem horribly fond of of Townsend. He doesn't really, he doesn't particularly. Uh, pay him the same kind of due that, say, he does Eric Burden or somebody like that, you know, who is obviously a level below, but he never seems to mention Townsend. Yeah. I didn't seem to like him. Yeah, I don't really know, but you're probably right. Um, maybe there was a slight bit of, uh, I don't know, friction or jealousy there because Pete was so self-contained as, as a songwriter who made who wrote every, everything for the band on his own, made all the demos on his own before he brought them to the band. You know, obviously, seriously talented guy. That might have had something to do with it. I don't know. But yeah. uh, it's possible. How many times have you seen The Who in concert, Dave? Well, not that many. Only about nearly 300 times. <laughs> <laughs> 
300. Damn. Yeah. And like, at Do least... you like them? No, can't stand them. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I had to go. I was forced to go and have my ears blown in. Yeah. What a pity that you weren't at that gig in the States when Keith killed over his drum kit and someone had to sit in for him. Oh, God, you could yeah, have jumped that... in. Oh, I don't know if I would have been able to then. But, yeah, that was an amazing thing to happen. But he was well out of it. But of those nearly 300 gigs, at least half of them were with Keith, who was always oh, incredible. Nice. Yeah. Always. I'm lonely. Girl, you know the reason why In the morning Wanna die In the evening Wanna die If I ain't dead already Girl, you know the reason why
so 68 you've had a few successes under your belt there Beatles wise yeah um, and you basically now you really kind of pick up the momentum in 69 well the thing is which I only realized in writing the book was that not only did I win free tickets to see the stones at the rock and roll circus and the whole thing but the same month the Beatles monthly had on its cover an invitation to win free tickets to what was planned as a Beatles TV show, which of course never happened. But I yeah. wrote in again, and I won the tickets. Uh, I was one of 25, just 25 people out of the thousands of Beatles fans and readers of Beatles Monthly to win the show. I must have been quite unique to win tickets to both. And of course, that show never happened because they went on the roof and did the show there instead. Uh, but, you know, I was always very knocked about it, uh, that they went ahead and did the show without actually telling me, uh, even though I was at school that day and didn't hear about it till I got home. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, uh, the, the swines, as I say. So, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but you got a consolation, didn't you? I got a sort of consolation prize. Well, the main thing was I got a letter from... Apple, which is reproduced in the book, saying we're very sorry that we're, we were unable to fill, fulfil your promised prize of a Beatles uh, ticket to a Beatles show, but we're having a good, long and hard think about a consolation prize. And we have decided that the, your prize will be an advanced copy of their new album, which was, which was <laughs> Abbey Road. So, uh, OK, well, that would be great if it was signed if it was a special edition, if it came in a special, you know, uh, container or something. But no, it just turned up as a, as a normal copy of Abbey Road in a, in a cardboard mailer, and that was it. It had nothing with it at all. Oh, I was just going to say, did, when they sent you a promo copy of uh, Unfinished Music, uh, did, did that have anything special in it? I never had a promo copy of that. Oh, I thought I read in the book, and I must have misread it, because no. uh, there was a great story about you talking to John and Yoko about uh, the yeah. Hamratty thing. That's right. That was also in 69, when uh, the music paper Disc and Music Echo had an article about John and Yoko, and uh, the Life with the Lions was the album, um, which was uh, released in May 69. And basically, they asked a question... Has anyone bothered to buy this album? And if so, why? So, uh, I, of course, I wrote in straight away. And I said, it's the most wonderful experience. The most, cos <laughs> the most, the most cosmic thing since sliced bread. Uh, you know, it makes me feel happy. Blah, blah, blah. Haunting. I think you said the, the words, it was haunting, right? Haunting, that was it. But had you actually listened to it? Of course not. No. <laughs> <laughs> I still haven't to this day. This is a piece called uh, Cambridge 1969. What happened was that I get home from school literally the next day or the day after the paper comes out. I think it was the next day because my name and address was published in the paper as a as a winner of an LP token, which I also received. 
And then this envelope, I get home from school and there's a letter waiting for me of scrawly black handwriting, which I open. Inside is a postcard of John and Yoko standing in front of the Eiffel Tower with a signed postcard and thanks for the kind words. So um, he'd read, the, read my letter in disc, written to me, wrote the envelope himself and sent, had it sent off literally the same amazing. day which is incredible that is amazing and of course you framed it and you've got it on your wall now haven't you of course you? i'm looking at it right now in my dreams because <laughs> not <laughs> unfortunately uh i took it with me to hyde park not long afterwards to show to show my pal uh i had it in a little white paper bag my dad already said don't take it anywhere put it in the bank you know, just keep it safe. But like an idiot, I take it to Hyde Park. We're watching, I think we were watching Blind Faith. And I just put it down uh, whilst we're there and I completely forgot about it. Damn. That was it. My re my letter would have got trashed and, you know, uh, unless a, a dustman was happy, was lucky enough to read it or pick it up, I doubt it. But that was it. That was Anyway, there is a good punchline to this because a few months later, um, now this was a completely deliberate act on my part where they had another premiere, the Magic Christian film starring Ringo and Peter Sellers, who I happen to be distantly related to as well. Yes. So that was happening at the Odeon of uh, Kensington on December the 11th 1969, exactly one year since the Rock and Roll Circus. So I said, I'm going along. I went on my own, dressed up in a nice suit and whatever. I get the tube all the way there, walk down to the cinema, and then there's loads of people. I just get a taxi. I hail a taxi from one minute away and, get, and <laughs> ask him to drop me off at the red carpet, which he did. So... <laughs> So I'm walking in up the red carpet with all the VIPs all dressed up in their in their tuxes and uh, and tiaras etc. So uh, and then it goes on. I managed to hustle a ticket at the box office. Uh, Naturally, uh, just as Princess Margaret is coming in, who walks straight past me with the organizer of the charity that night. Anyway, and I'm standing there, and who do I see? John and Yoko are there, and they're in the foyer. They're doing this protest for a guy called James Hanratty, who had been executed a few years earlier as the A6 murderer, um, which was a famous case in the UK where uh, he was he was hanged for this uh, murder. But there's a lot of doubt about his case, and John and Yoko was there to pr protest his innocence. They'd uh, they were really doing a good job with a, uh, uh, holding a you know, handwritten um, poster in front of them, you know, free hand ratty or he's innocent, whatever. So they're literally standing there by themselves for a second. So I go over, start chatting, and John tells me what, what it's all about, what they're doing. And I said, oh, that's interesting. But I say, oh, I must thank you also for, um, if you remember, you sent me a... <laughs> Um, a letter a few months ago when I wrote about the Life of the Lions album in disc, and they remembered it, uh, at least he did, and I said, I've got to thank you for that, and he says, fine, and then I said, I must admit, 
I have to confess to you, I'd never heard the letter when I wrote it, and I still haven't. And they laughed their heads off. They thought that was great. <laughs> I love the autograph that you got from John. Oh, yeah, that was the, the, uh, the, that was the icing on the cake that I asked him to sign the souvenir program I had for the film. And on page three, there was a, a classic portrait of Princess Margaret taken by her husband, Lord Snowden. So John signs it in Blue Biro underneath her portrait with an arrow pointing to her lips. And you've seen that many times. And it looks as if he'd written it today or yesterday. And it's, it's absolutely fantastic. As I said before, the key word with you is chutzpah. And another incident that comes to mind in that vein is when you knocked on Ringo's door and asked him out for a drink. Well, that's right. That was in 1970 when I was, a, well, you know him as well, our good pal Vince Lewis, who I was yeah. later in a band with for quite a few years. He's a bass player, I'm a drummer. And we're in, we lived in Edgware at the time, northwest London, and, you know, it was a Saturday night, didn't have much to do, didn't have much money. And I said, uh, said to Vince, I know. And I said, why don't we go drive to Hampstead? As he'd just got his new car, his first car was a was a... Ford Anglia back in the day. Oh, like George? Yeah. So I said, why, uh, why don't we go and find Ringo? Because I know, uh, I read what street he lives in and see if he wants to come out for a drink. Uh, <laughs> I swear to you, that was, that was the idea. A good few miles drive to Hampstead, finding his street, a small private road just opposite Kenwood, which is a very well-known uh, house on Hampstead Heath. Kenwood was also the name of John's home in Weybridge. So, uh, yes. Uh, but anyway, so we find the street. Didn't have a clue which house it was, though. I just knew it was called Compton Avenue. That's what we found. So, uh, what do we do? Well, we go to the first house on the left, ring the bell to ask if they know where Ringo lives. <laughs> and, and who comes to the door, to our astonishment, but Lulu who uh, the singer Lulu, <laughs> who at the time was married to Maurice Gibb of the Bee Gees. And he comes to the door dressed, he's wearing an apron. Hopefully more than just an apron, right? Yeah, he was wearing a bit more than an apron. <laughs> but the two of them at the door, and we're saying, oh, we're, I'm saying, um, well, we're, we're, going, we're invited to Ringo's house tonight, but we're not sure which one it is. So, I'm like, well, Vince has got his sheepskin jacket on. We look pretty scruffy. And Aunt Lily says, oh, you can't miss it. It's just down the end of the road. And uh, it's got a big drive down just at the bottom. And Morris says, yeah, give them our love. And can you imagine anyone doing that today? What, you know, a celebrity Impossible. pair telling you where another celebrity lives. Just unbelievable. Uh, so we say thank you very much they close the door and we walk down the street which is not very far and as they said it's a big double house and but there were cars in the drive and there's obviously seemed to be something going on but so we still ring the bell who comes to the door but Ringo himself uh, <laughs> and he, he's holding a pool cue as he comes to the door and he looks at us thinking, what the hell are two, these two young guys doing? He said, oh, hello, lads, how can I help you? 
And I said, well, just wondering if you fancy coming out for a pint tonight as, you know, we're, we're in the area. That's <laughs> unbelievable. <laughs> it's just us. Yeah. So he's a little bit surprised by this. <laughs> but he says, ah, he says, oh, I would do, but I'm afraid we've got, I've got, we got friends in tonight, so it's a bit difficult, but another time maybe. But thanks very much. Hold on, you disappoint me, though. You didn't say, well, can we come in? Ah, uh, well... Yeah, you're right. Yeah, you should have said, uh, "Geez, I, I see my buddy Eric Clapton over there." You know, you, I'm, I'm pretty good at pool. Well, let's, let's, uh, yeah. yeah, as he's t- talking to us, I can see Eric Clapton walking in the hall behind him. So, you know, he wasn't fobbing us off. So, yeah, we should have asked to be let in. A few years later, he'd have been saying, "Oh, pate sandwiches, my favourite." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, so he closes the door. And we go off and we're laughing our heads off. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. It's fantastic. It is. Obviously, we don't want to give away everything that's in the book, but one other story I'd love you to tell is how you just chanced it and basically ended up spending a nice afternoon with Aunt Mimi. Oh, yeah, dear old Aunt Mimi. Well, that was late August, early September of 1981. I knew that there was an American girl who had been a friend of hers since the 60s, was staying with her, um, had flown over to England, especially to, you know, spend time with her and, you know, help console her, whatever, in her time of grief. So I went down there, booked a little bed and breakfast place nearby, and went along, took some flowers, knocked on the door. Didn't you look up her address in the phone book, Dave? Didn't you say she was listed in the phone book? I think you're right. I can't quite remember. Yeah, uh, I think so. Anyway, I found I found the house, um, which is called Harbour's Edge, on uh, in Sandbanks, which is now the uh, reputedly is now the most expensive street in the UK, but, and it's full of luxury flats and houses. But then, her, the bungalow that John bought her was a very modest little place, and uh, you know, nice little bungalow. It's now been replaced with a big house apparently worth seven million pounds which is insane um anyway so i'm i'm there i give her the flowers make the introductions and i'm there for well that afternoon and most of the evening and some of the next day as well and we got on really well and she was great i really really enjoyed meeting her and she uh I think she must have taken to me because she was really open about talking to me about John, about all the Beatles, about lots of people. I only wish I could have recorded it because it was fascinating. Did she say anything about John visiting during his retirement? You know, there are rumours that he actually visited her. Well, that's what I asked her. And she was quite adamant, yes, that John had come to visit her in secret during the 70s. But she couldn't tell me where, when or give me any other information about it. I didn't want to press too hard. But in her mind, John had come to see her. And now, it's never been mentioned by Yoko or anybody else but I've only got it from Mimi's own mouth that that's what happened, which I would like to believe was true, but 
I have my doubts, obviously. Yeah. I'll give her the benefit of the doubt anyway, and it, it, it's great to imagine him being there. She kept his bedroom made up for him all those years, where he used to stay when he visited, with, with his gold discs and BMI awards on the, on the wall. So I've got a picture of that in the book. And also you saw the guitars all right for a hobby, John Platt, which was done later, I know, but uh, you saw that, didn't you? Oh, yeah, that was hanging up in the... Uh, uh, between the kitchen and the lounge. So now you also tasted Mimi's home cooking, didn't you? She made you, I think, a plate of chips, French fries. Yeah, egg and chips. I mean, she was living pretty basically, I have to say, and it seemed like she was making egg and chips for herself most days. And uh, so, yeah, that's what I had. And and I, I, you know, I think I said in the book that you know, once I'd had a egg and chips and we were speaking and I knew I'd passed the audition. So <laughs> Right. But now was it while she was making the egg and chips that you noticed some Lennon artifacts in her drawers? I don't mean the drawers that she wore. <laughs> that I mean... sounded really wrong, Richard. <laughs> yeah, I mean I mean her sort of chest of drawers as such. No, that was a little later when we sat down after tea or supper and we sat in her lounge and we're chatting away. And, yeah, she's talking about John as a kid, as a schoolboy, uh, as a young tearaway. And then she's showing me what she does have in, in some of the drawers, some of his school ties, his cap, shirts. So she still had some of his early clothing there, as well as some of his drawings. Um, so she's bringing all this stuff out to show me. I mean, I was just incredulous, really, but it was an honour to be shown all this stuff. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, didn't take any pictures of any of that. But, of course, all that was later requisitioned by Yoko and sent to the Dakota. So, uh, I mean, John had already asked Mimi to send her stuff from his childhood, but she'd, she'd kept some back, obviously. So I was lucky to see it. And I don't think... Well, very few people have ever seen it since. Now, Eric, I have to tell you, you know, it's all too much, this book by David, which is about his Beatles-related adventures. As I said, you know, I wrote um, one of the forewords for the book, and as I said in I, there... Uh, yes, I read it last night. Right, and I, as I said in there, I look forward to volume two because his adventures aren't just limited to the Beatles at all. And, oh, yeah, I saw that. Yeah, and what you would have also read in the foreword was about how David's one of these guys, I've, I've watched him in action, right? I've been <laughs> there when I've seen him do his thing. And it's very much a case of, he, as I said, he's got the chutzpah and he makes his own luck. So when we hear these stories like, oh, my God, you know, uh, Lulu answer the door with Maurice Skib, you know, pointing the way to Ringo's house. But it's he also t takes chances that the rest of us don't usually do, right? And so he, he makes these opportunities for himself and... I just remember one time because he's a publisher of a very well-respected industry magazine for music publishers and composers called Songlink International. Yeah. So David sits on panels, you know, judging song contests and things like that and all over the world. And one time I remember he'd just returned from Cuba. Oh, yes. <laughs> and so he'd been judging something there and I was just being facetious and I just said to him, so um, photo of you with Fidel Castro? Don't you think he had one? <laughs> yeah. I, I, which, as I said, it would be like someone saying they've just made a trip to London. And you say, oh, have you got a photo with the Queen? Yeah, exactly. You know, it's like, <laughs> my God, he's even got a photo with Castro. Well, not only did I meet him, 
and it was a special week. It wasn't a contest. It was a week of uh, very famous artists co-writing with each other from the States and the UK. People like uh, Burt Bacharach was there, Bonnie Raitt, um, Beth Nielsen Chapman, I mean, uh, Andy Summers, Stuart Copeland, Don Wars, Peter Frampton, just so many people. And they're all writing yeah. songs together. And I was there because uh, my pal organized the thing I was doing some stuff with. So um, they did a concert at the end of the thing in the uh, place called the Karl Marx Theatre, a great name, which was basically, <laughs> it's, I don't know if it, uh, it's probably still He was there. one of those uh, comedy Marx brothers, wasn't he? Wasn't he like, like Zeppo? He was like, he didn't get in the films. Yeah, that's right, Car- Carlo, yes. He was the fifth Marx yeah. brother. Carlo. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, so the theatre was just like a huge rundown old cinema, but they did a concert there, which was fantastic. And then afterwards, all all the artists and all of us got put into two buses and we'd get driven to Castro's headquarters in downtown Havana. And uh, and really, this is this is a big modern building, like a fortress to keep the you know the, the people out. And all, you know, around the corner on the streets is poverty and stuff. And, of course, we walk in there, huge buffet all laid out, as much food as you want. I mean, it was a bit sickening, to be honest. Um, but then he was there. Uh, it was a big PR thing for him to be there and meet and greet every single person individually on that trip after midnight. Uh, wow. And uh, so we all got to speak with him. And even had some video taken with him, which I've also got. And I actually invited him to London because he'd never been. <laughs> yeah. I, I, it, oh, that would have gone down well. <laughs> I did. I said I like to, you know, I like you know, c- come over and we can hang out. But uh, <laughs> you could have given him a, like a rap name, like Fiddy Pence. <laughs> yeah. Hey, come on over, Fiddy Pence. Yeah. Fido, I'll show you my Beatles scrapbooks. Yeah, well, there can't have met, can't have been too many people that have met uh, John Lennon and Fidel Castro. So, uh, there you go. No, I shouldn't think yeah. so. And so that was an experience, yeah, and I got the picture with him. And, uh, so, yeah, I'm a lucky guy that my job has taken me around the world. I've met many great people, but also because I still like going to live gigs, you know, whenever we have them again. And, you know, meeting the artists and schmoozing my way, as Richard knows. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's a, yeah, but a lucky life. And, yeah, I guess if I've got the time and energy, there will be a second book. Well, the first one's a delight, and I would strongly, strongly recommend it to people that it just, it flows beautifully for me. I mean, you just keep going, what, what did he do next? Yeah, thank you. Because it's so kind of random in, in, in some of the things, but it, it paints some very interesting uh, pictures in the mind. And I think anybody who's listening today, honestly, this isn't just because it's a buddy, but this book is, is really fun. Thanks a lot. Yeah, I mean, I've wanted this, you know, for years because he's got just so many fantastic stories. So many, as I said. I know. Yeah, we haven't even touched on the time when, say, I introduced George to my mother at the Albert Hall or being made a companion by Sir Paul McCartney at Lipper in Liverpool, which is like getting an honorary degree. So for the last uh, wow. 14 years, I've been a companion of Lipper and I give out the songwriting prizes with him every single year, apart from wow. this year. Uh, so, and he's, yeah. you know... I wouldn't say he's a close friend, but we know each other. And, you know, 
I'm always, it's always amazing to meet him. So that's all in the book. And I've also attended one of your concerts with the Trembling Wilburys. And it was fantastic. I have to say, it was really impressive. I mean, yeah, you're my mate, but this was a, a really nice theatre and a very enthusiastic audience. Thanks. And it was just a lot of fun. And you've had quite a lot of success with that. Yeah, the band's been going, it will be 10 years right now. And we were scheduled to be playing our 10th anniversary concert uh, in December, which isn't going to happen, unfortunately. Uh, but yeah, the, the Wilburys, um, we've got the closest lookalike to George in the world, really. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and the guy who plays Roy Orbison is brilliant as well. So yes, we've got, we've got a fun voice. band. You know, and I've played drums all my life, and I played years ago with uh, a guy called Gary Gibson in the John Lennon Experience, uh, yeah. and I played, I've actually played with the Quarrymen once, when uh, Colin Hansen, their drummer, couldn't make a gig in London because he was having a shoulder operation. I'm the deputy drummer for the Quarrymen, so that's my other, that's the <laughs> other side of things, you know. Uh, I play drums, I'm a, I, I make music and do all other stuff, so you know, it's kind of a bit unique in that respect, I think. Just to be authentic with the Quarrymen, did you have a row with them after the gig and quit the group? Absolutely, yes, because my check shirt was the right check and they were all disagreeing with me. <laughs> I have to ask you, that's a curious uh, name, Trembling Wilburys. Uh, do any of the f members are former members of the Knee Tremblers by any chance? No, but the Trembling Wilburys was the original name that George suggested. I did not know that. That was their original name. If you r read the book or see the, you know, the documentary, and it was Tom Petty who I think who suggested changing it to Travelling Wilburys. Oh, That's how it started. Well, well, actually, on that subject, Hutzpah alert, Eric. <laughs> another, <laughs> another David one is because David knows members of the Who pretty well, which you'd imagine after three hundred plus kids watching <laughs> I, sh them. I should hope so right yes. and he had the the absolute nerve to tell pete townsend that he had at that time uh, dave david was in um, a who's covers band oh yeah called the what <laughs> <laughs> yeah that was a that was a ridiculous name but uh, i started the the first who tribute band yeah in the uk i always said wow. it should have been called boohoo boohoo yeah oh, and i was like an idiot there's film of us where we were playing a pub in Camden Town where, you know, I, I hired a double drum kit and I tried to make myself look, look like Keith Moon by painting eye, painting my eyebrows and all that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, it was ridiculous. Anyway, well, the, the most oh, ridiculous man. part was when you blew up the drum kit. Yeah, exactly. And I had to explain it. Oh, no, really? Yeah. Yikes. Completely demolished. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah. So, so what inspired you finally... Was it the pandemic, the, the lockdown, that you had more time that motivated you to finally write your memoir, It's All Too Much? Well, actually, you're right, because I, I started it two years ago and I was getting on OK. And, like, you know, I know you, you've written masses of books and, you know, you do it as your living. And, um, you know, I'm busy writing and doing all my other stuff. So I started the book thinking I've got to do it, and I got so far, and I've done quite a bit of it until last year, where I I couldn't continue. I had a few health issues, and I needed my eyesight was a problem. I needed cataracts doing, which didn't take place the first one until the end of last year. 
and the second cataract operation took place the day before lockdown started here in March. And it was only after my eyesight was better again, I thought, right, I'm going to continue with the book and get it done. And it's thanks to lockdown, and I suppose thanks to the virus, I've managed to achieve that. And it's literally taken all this time because it's it's been, you know, it's not a very long book, but I wanted to get it absolutely right, and uh, it's finally coming out. I'm so glad, really. Thank I really you. am. I think it's fantastic. Yeah. Everyone should get a copy of this. How can they obtain it, David? The publisher is called This Day in Music Books. So it's on their site at thisdayinmusicbooks.com, along with some other great music books. But it will also be on Amazon. And I'm also about to record an audio version of it for an audio book with a few added bonuses including your forward, Richard. Um, I've got two forwards, which is quite unusual. Another friend of mine, Leslie Ann Jones, who's written what is currently the best-selling book about John Lennon, um, which has been released around the world. Uh, so there's that coming, and that's going to include the song which you, you might be playing on the outro, my track called Gold Songs. So that will all right. be in there. David Stark, get down on one knee now because I'm now going to officially anoint you as the Beatles <laughs> Zelig. I am the Beatles <laughs> Zelig, there's no two ways about it. There's a brand new dance, come up the river, just jerk your head and shake your liver, you'll do long chameleon, photodoxion, make your face that's like a lizard and feel that beat down in your gizzard, you'll do long chameleon. He's a right lurker. One thing he is, we have to define, because you make so much of your own luck, and and because there is so much serendipity in your story, Dave, you're not a stalker, but you're a starker. Ah, <laughs> very good. His Two Virgins album cover, Stark Naked. Ah, uh, there you go. Actually, and the cover's got beautiful artwork on it, too, for people. Oh, yes, I must mention the cover, which I, I kind of came across online by accident because i was looking around for images as possible covers and i found this beautiful painting of the four of them uh, which is by a canadian artist name of ingrid black in montreal it's a wonderful wonderful picture so i contacted her and she'd done it a few years ago but it was on her website and she'd actually sold the original but um I said, can I use it for the book? And she said, sure, we did a little deal. And so that's it. And now she can't wait for it to come out. She's been very supportive. But I recommend if anyone's into, you know, great art, go and check it out at ingridblack.com. She's, she's a lovely artist. And so what song do you want us to play out with, Dave? One Beatles song. I think I should go for an appropriate one. I am the stalker. I mean, sorry, I am the walrus. <laughs> i
by Richard Buskin. Theme music by Craig Bartow.
I started writing my tribute song after John died back in like 1981-82. Just a very basic demo I made at the time. But then years later I thought I've got to finish this thing. So I did that about 10 years ago and did it properly in the studio and rewrote quite a bit of it and added bits and it's called Gold Songs. Remember all those years ago when yesterday was born And golden slumbers kissed your eyes while sexy Sadie snored Oh, life was so much easier, the walrus kept us warm the splendid time was guaranteed for all So play those gold songs The ones we love the best Those old songs They'll always stand the test of time Those melodies will always be A part of you, a part of me time when love was all and flowers were in your hair we all enjoyed the Hendersons a Pablo Fank is fair even though the orchestra is left the best and bare the music still surrounds us everywhere so play those gold songs the best, those old songs, they'll always stand the test of time, those melodies will always be a part of you, a part of me, the memories they gave us will never disappear. Meditating years The greatest show on earth for all to hear And now it's been so many years Since yesterday was born And golden slumbers kissed your eyes While sexy Sadie snored And though the dream is over and the dreamer's eyes are sealed We can't forget the songs that made it real So play those gold songs The ones we love the best Those old songs They'll always stand the test of time Those melodies will always be A part of you, a part of me So play the 